Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Brandy Buckman, who is a journalist with lawandcrime.com and who has been covering the J6 trials extensively. Thanks for joining us, Brandy. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about how you found yourself on the J6 beat? So I actually started out covering the White House and Congress when Trump came into office. And I was assigned to cover the certification of the vote on January 6th. I was down there that morning with a colleague of mine, and we had expected it would be a very long day because we knew that there was going to be a lot of objections. And that was pretty much the beginning of the rest of my, uh, well, the next three years anyway, that I've been spending covering on the January 6th beat. So it's been pretty much nonstop ever since that day. So. We had this situation. There was a little bit of light treason. Subsequently, there have been a number of trials in relation to seditious conspiracy. Maybe just to establish ourselves, what was the seditious conspiracy charge that was leveled against people from groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys? Sure. Yeah. So there are quite literally more than a thousand January 6th defendants. And of the thousand January 6th defendants that have either pled out or gone to trial or they've been arrested, the folks who committed seditious conspiracy were specifically central to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Both of those organizations have roots in fascism. Both of them have roots in racism, misogyny, um, all the rest. And essentially, these two groups, while they did not work necessarily in concert together, they both had similar goals on January 6th, and they both went about achieving them in their own means. And for the United States, seditious conspiracy just essentially says that you have tried to use force to stop the transfer of power or to stop the authority of the federal government here. So of everybody that stormed the Capitol that day, these folks, I think, by by and large, had had it in their mind that there was something more to do there than to protest or just kind of get pissed off for a day. Now, our listeners are hopefully across the Proud Boys, but could you maybe tell us a little bit about who the Oath Keepers are and who was Stuart Rhodes, their leader? Yeah, the Oath Keepers are a group that started, I believe it was back in 2009. And it, it's essentially like this. 
There are a lot of folks who join that organization who are U.S. veterans, military veterans, police officers, a lot of folks who are law enforcement, who really felt like they wanted to, in the beginning anyway, they wanted to sort of be more a part of their community. They wanted to help people who were in need, like Hurricane Katrina here uh, in Louisiana. They'll, They'll do kind of outreach stuff like that at the beginning of the organization. But sort of as time went on, the Oath Keepers as a group that sort of vowed to uphold the Constitution and vowed to protect all of our laws against any anyone, including people domestically who might break them, they sort of became increasingly radicalized and increasingly antagonistic of groups like Black Lives Matter, groups, groups in the United States or people who associate with Antifa. And it really became for them about becoming this like, private vigilante law enforcement squad where they would go to towns, especially in 2020 in America, where they would go to cities and they would help enforce quote unquote law and order. Whereas in a lot of the time, the actual police in these communities didn't even want them there. So this is the kind of cosplaying that we have going on. And then the gentleman who is in charge or was in charge of the Oath Keepers and is now in prison in Maryland, I believe, Elmer Stewart Rhodes, he is a very interesting character. He was Yale educated. He worked for a member of Congress. He's clerked for some important people. He's a very well read. He's very well spoken. He, I could see certainly where he's a charming individual, but he goes very hard into the camp of, I think, xenophobia, racism, and all the rest. He would deny that, but I think that actions speak louder than words in his case. Brandy Stewart's found himself in quite a bit of trouble following January 6th. Can you describe what's happened to Stewart and to the Oath Keepers generally in the wake of the cases that have been brought against them? Yeah, I mean, the Oath Keepers were sort of hobbling on a on a very delicate balance by the time January 6th had rolled around. They were hemorrhaging money. There was a lot of infighting going on among leadership. Rhodes was increasingly uh, unpopular among people who were around with the organization from the beginning because he was sort of bringing in this violent sort of element. And Rhodes's role in leading what jurors here found to be a seditious conspiracy to stop the transfer of power and to try to keep Trump in office, it was it was instrumental in really kind of destroying that organization and upending it all together. Now he's doing 18 years in prison. He has appealed his sentence. He has appealed the verdict. I think that he has a very tough uphill battle to overcome that if Donald Trump does not become president again here in the United States, or if someone just like him does not become president in the United States. Brandy, you made reference to law and order being an animating, I guess, vision for people who took part in the insurrection, the failed insurrection. There may not have been a sufficient amount of law and order present on the day on January 6th. Can you speak to what actually happened and what was the role of the police in policing this event? The thing with the Oath Keepers in January 6th and the discussion of law and order is the Oath Keepers did not go to D.C. on January 6th because they wanted to keep the rabble at bay or because they wanted to protect Trump supporters, which is what they argued in court. 
what they what they came to DC to do was they believed that there was a good chance Donald Trump would invoke the Insurrection Act, a piece of legislation here that essentially says if the government feels the need to, if there's an emergency, they can raise up they can raise up a small military, they can raise up a militia to help them. And Rhodes went to great lengths to try and contact the White House. He published several open letters begging for the Trump administration to invoke the Insurrection Act. And I believe he was under the impression that that was what was going to happen all the way up until January 6th. And so when he came there with several Oath Keepers with him, they had stashed a ton of guns in a hotel about 10, 15 minutes across the water from DC, across our Potomac River here. Mm. And the plan, more or less, was when they were called up, if Trump invoked the Insurrection Act, or if they felt they had to take law into their own hands and take over the Capitol, they would have an arsenal of weapons to do it. And there was a gentleman who testified, who was an oath keeper, who was also former military, who told the jury that when he walked into the hotel room and he saw the number of guns that were present there, it was more than any he had seen in his time at the arsenals when he was in the military. So, I mean, it was they their idea of law and order is a very cloudy, cloudy concept. And, you know, what they set out to do that day, I think a realistic person would look at that and say, that's stupid. And that's not a very credible thing to try and do. And even with all these guns, you're in the nation's capital. You're not you're not going to have much success. That's how delusional I think they were. I thought it was interesting. You recently reported on another case involving a J6 writer, a former police officer, Thomas Roberts. And what I thought was interesting about that was that he's attempting to appeal his conviction on the basis that he was convicted of corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. And his argument is it's not corrupt if you believe that you're doing the right thing, which could open up a whole new world of precedent in terms of uh, good intentions. Yeah, that's a really, it's an interesting case. And he's not really had much luck yet trying to convince the judges that the language in the statute means what it means. Essentially, his argument is that I wasn't acting with corrupt intent when I came to the Capitol and I stormed it and I was armed. I, I, I came to this area because I wanted to do something that was legitimate. I wanted to protest. And so there's an interesting question around, well, how can you prove someone's corrupt intent? And usually we have to look at what they say and what they do. And so when the judges looked and looked at what he said and what he did, and they looked at just the plain definition of the word corrupt to, to act in a way it's surreptitiously, essentially, that you're, you're trying to get a benefit for yourself that maybe you would not otherwise. And it's a really it's been very interesting listening to so many of these January 6th defendants and so many of their lawyers try to argue semantics, but a lot of the law in the United States, I, I fear, unfortunately, is is around semantics. So, In terms of the defendants, Brandy, the crowd has been characterized as being uh, overwhelmingly white and uh, male. What can you say about those who found themselves before the courts on charges? Who, who are these people who are have found themselves in this situation? I mean, it, it is over, it is overwhelmingly white and male. That's not to say that there are not individuals who are of color or who are not white or male. There's certain, certainly been women who have come through. There's Henry Enrique Tario, who's the leader of the Proud Boys, who was convicted of seditious conspiracy, and he got the stiffest sentence yet, incidentally, of 22 years. 
he is Afro-Cuban. So there's certainly some diversity, but overwhelmingly what we had, and this is always something that I sort of think about when I think about January 6th and the response to it, what we had was a lot of white male grievance on steroids that day. And as a reporter who had covered the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, who covered the George Floyd protests in 2020, I, I, have seen how protesters are treated in my town, in D.C. I I could almost say without a shadow of a doubt, if it would have been a very large group of people of color who stormed the Capitol like that, it would not have gone as far as it would have gone. And I know that for some that might be an, an unpopular opinion here in America, but I mean, we saw that they had the National Guard out on the steps of the Capitol when we had BLM protests going on here, when there were uh, racial justice protests going on here. And uh, just wasn't wasn't the case on January 6th. And there was plenty of writing on the wall about what was coming. So it's, it was all a little bit jarring to see just how lopsided that was. Uh, you mentioned Henry Tarrio's sentence was the highest of any of these seditious conspiracy cases. How did he end up with this high sentence, given that he actually wasn't even present on the day? Yeah. So the thing with Tario is that as the leader of the Proud Boys, the judge and the jury, the evidence, the way the prosecution presented it, the Proud Boys are a particularly violent group. And what we saw in the communications in court was just how violent they were. And with Tario specifically, how he did not disavow it. He didn't try to turn the temperature down while the rioting was going on. He egged it on. He took credit for it. He, he said, we did this in a text message to another Proud Boy who also pled guilty for to seditious conspiracy. And I think for Tario, he didn't legally to be convicted and to be found guilty of the seditious conspiracy charge, it was not necessary for the government to prove that there was this drawn out plan. Everything was highly detailed. It could be implied. There wasn't a necessary factor of being there that was required either. It was simply that as the head of that organization, as the person who set up all of these private back channels, particularly who set up this back channel that the Proud Boys had called the Ministry of Self-Defense, which was targeting things for, for January 6th and was a particularly limited to members of the organization who were violent or who were willing to to employ violence. I think that the judge sort of understood that it didn't matter whether or not Tario would have been there on the grounds. He had no problems orchestrating it. And the last thing I'll say on that point, too, is that there's a reason why Tario wasn't at the Capitol that day. He was allegedly tipped off. I say allegedly because the police officer that tipped him off has yet to go to trial. But as far as Tario goes, we know that Tario did receive information saying that he would be arrested if he came to D.C. And so he sort of understood that if he came to D.C., he would get arrested. He would have an alibi. As another documentarian put it, he took himself off the battlefield that day in order to give himself an out. And I think that that with all of the things that we learned at trial, that was the accurate assessment of what happened. Uh, Brandy, Trump famously called upon the Proud Boys prior to the insurrection to stand back and stand by. They took action on January the 6th. What's the relationship or what has been the relationship between Trump and the Proud Boys and how is that expressed now in 2023? 
The relationship, I think, is one of convenience, much like everything I feel in Donald Trump's world. When the Proud Boys were being sentenced in court, a lot of them would say, oh, I don't want anything to do with politics. And Donald Trump led me down the road of ruin and all the rest. And we're a scapegoat for Donald Trump because he will never be prosecuted. That's all we ever heard was how how horrible Donald Trump was. And then when they got convicted and they were done being sentenced and reality sunk in and they were on their way to prison, it was a different story. It was, oh, only Donald Trump can save me. I'm going to get a pardon from Donald Trump. America has to reelect Donald Trump. This is what Tario was saying. This is what Biggs, Joseph Biggs, another proud boy, Ethan Nordine, another proud boy who was uh, charged and convicted. They will come to his side, I think, so long as it's convenient for them to come to his side. And I think that Trump knows that he can activate essentially just with his words, groups of people in the United States that will uh, prompt chaos, will foment, will foment chaos in his name. I, I, don't, I don't think that that relationship is completely done, even though I will say the Proud Boys as an organization themselves, uh, pretty well, pretty well hurt by this. But we see now that they're sort of branching out into other things. And there's other groups, right-wing extremist groups in the United States that are now sort of glomming on to culture war issues and using that as a, as a means to sort of be violent. I mean, in the mob, it's one thing if you're to pledge fealty on your way to jail, but if you actually went against the family in the courtroom, it's generally not looked upon too kindly. Do you think Trump will reward the disloyalty with pardons or do you think they are off the table now? I think, I don't know if Donald Trump knows what loyalty really is. I think that Donald Trump knows what works for him in the moment. And I think so long as he feels that there's some sort of benefit in it for him to to pardon anybody, if he thinks it'll score him political points, if, if he thinks it will score him more votes, I think he would say and do anything. I, I don't think any of those guys, the Oath Keepers or otherwise, it's it's interesting I think a lot of these guys believe that they were a lot more important than they actually were and that they were actually on the level with somebody like Donald Trump, who frankly wouldn't spit on them if they were on fire. So I, I, I think he would have no problem doing it so long as there was something in it for him. Brandy, in terms of the, I guess, media reportage on this subject, Tario seems to have been quite surprised along with others to have been convicted and received such long sentences. What do you think, and the event itself was shocking, based on your own experience documenting these groups and BLM and, and protests in America, do you think that the threat posed by these groups was taken seriously enough prior to January 6th? And what's been the um, response of the state and the police and the courts since? I don't think it was. I think that there were there was a lot of writing on the wall, essentially. There was so much that was being said on social media. There were so many tips that were flowing around. There was a lot of people in our uh, intelligence apparatus here in the United States. I think that I know, I know that they understood that there were people who were making very scary threats about killing lawmakers, about bombing the buildings and all the rest. And I think that something something occurred, the, the ball was dropped, it wasn't taken seriously. And I think that part of that problem was because we had four years prior to that moment where the country, a lot, a, a lot of people were just worn down. And I think that for a lot of people who were 
not as close to it and not paying as close attention to it, it seemed like, oh, well, sure, there's just some angry people that are out there and they're just going to they're going to come out and they're going to march around with their little signs and they're going to go home. But I, I think that there was just like glaring, glaring intelligence failures that day. And I think that in terms of how we're going forward, it's I mean, it keeps me up at night. I, I honestly I don't know how this is all going to shake out in the next year to two. I see an increasing rise of fundamentalists in the United States. They target LGBT communities. They, they target women. We're sort of we're dealing with a contingency of people in our political system right now who I would describe as Christo fascists. And so how this all is determined, I think we're kind of coming to yet again, another inflection point in the United States. I think that the fact that we managed to escape another four years of Donald Trump the first time was, was a very, very fortunate thing. And we have a lot of, a lot of work to do still. We always have a lot of work to do in America in terms of pretty much everything. But in terms of tamping down that extremism, I think it's going to probably get worse before it gets better, to be perfectly honest. Brandy, Trump has his own legal troubles. Could you take us through some of the cases that he's currently facing? And do you think they'll affect his candidacy next year? <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it, it's almost getting easier to ask, where isn't he being indicted right now? So he's got a civil fraud trial for allegedly inflating the value of his assets in New York. This coming week ahead, he has all of his children that are expected to testify against him, or several of his children anyway. He is expected to testify in that case. So his businesses are being, you know, very intensely impacted right now as a result of that trial. Then we have the indictment in Georgia, where he and a slew of other people who helped him allegedly advance this fake elector scheme in order to stop the proceedings, in order to subvert the election and to get himself in office. That is going on full bore right now. And he's got folks who are flipping on him and who are have agreed to cooperate with the state. And then, of course, we have the situation in D.C., which is, in my opinion, the marquee case for all of this. I might be a little bit, a little biased, but this case in D.C., he's been charged with three different criminal conspiracies to defraud the United States, to overturn the results of the election, all criminally conspiring to do this. And then also he's been hit with an obstruction charge. And interestingly enough, the obstruction charge that they use here in America comes from, it, it basically stems up out of our out of the time of the KKK, when the KKK would disenfranchise people from voting and would obstruct them from voting. And so that is a pretty philosophically, morally lofty thing that the government has charged him with on that last charge, if you ask me. But he's got he's got it tough. And on top of that, he's facing multiple lawsuits where there are people trying to remove him from the ballot for 2024. On Monday, for example, this coming week, he will be his lawyers will be in Colorado, and they will be arguing to try and keep him on the ballot because a group of Republican voters, as well as one independent voter, have decided that he violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which essentially bars any individual who has taken up arms or has basically betrayed their oath to the Constitution or give, provided aid or comfort to those who do, they are not allowed to serve in office. They're disqualified. And so this is all, he's getting it from all angles. I, I, I'm not one to ever give Donald Trump a lot of room on his his complaining about his how tough he has it. But I would tell you, I don't envy his position right now. He's got a lot of legal problems right now. 
Brandy, to what extent do you think Trump's problems are to do with Antifa? Because I know following January 6th, there was a lot of speculation about uh, the role of Antifa in the insurrection. And I understand they're not very popular figures in the United States, at least as far as the popular press is concerned. Yeah. So it was proven, including by members of our official intelligence community, Antifa was not responsible for January 6th. That, that is a myth that gets perpetrated by people on the right because it's convenient. And that's, that's the boogeyman. And it's always the boogeyman with them. And I think it's been, it's been very, challenging to sort of watch the conversation about this evolve over the years. While there are certainly elements in the United States on the far left that people might quantify as quote unquote Antifa. Look, there are people who are going to want to use extreme means to achieve their political ends. And I think that usually those, those means backfire and they tend not to be beneficial to a lot of people, a lot of people get hurt, a lot of bad things happen. And then you have situations where people get demonized for basically standing up for what they think is right. And I think that that's what happened. I watched that happen here in 2020 and 2021. A lot of people who were just simply uh, advocating for civil justice and were advocating for some something better than what we had in terms of how police in the United States, for example, are treated and go through our justice system when, when they break the law. A lot of people get lumped into this quote-unquote Antifa category because it's just easier for people who can't have a conversation that's nuanced about politics or about society to just lump them in there. And like, to be fair, look, the same thing happens with conservatives in the United States. I, I know plenty of people who are right-wing conservatives who I would not lump into the same category as Trumpers, for example, or I would not let, I would not lump them into the category of people who would go and commit insurrection, even though they might might share similar political ideas. So I think, unfortunately, like in people who support the anti-fascist movement, a lot of them get a bad rap. A lot of them, they're, they're, they're engaged in things that unfortunately are illegal and the United States government will come calling and will come cracking down on you for that. But I think as far as January 6th goes, the, the suggestion that these two things are one and the same or they were involved, it's just not so. And you can look with your own eyes and you can see all of the footage, everybody that was around. We, we, we know who was there and it was supporters of the president, of the former presidents and all of their ilk. Brandy, the US presidential election is next year. It'll be characterized by all sorts of conflict, I imagine. Do you expect the specter of Antifa to return? to the streets or to the discourse surrounding the presidential election? I would think so. I don't think that that dynamic is going to dissipate anytime soon. I think so long as we have this far right element who are very vocal about their fascist ideologies and are out here trying to terrorize just people trying to live their lives. I think that there's always going to be a response from people on the opposite side of that equation. And so long as there's a response on the opposite side of the equation that is not necessarily palatable either to the public or to the laws of the United States, it will be an issue. And I don't think that the right, the political right here are going to give up the boogeyman of saying everything and everyone they disagree with is Antifa anytime soon. Brandy, just finally, the sedition trials, I think it's fair to say, was sort of a big deal. In terms of the media coverage, though, there were only, I think, two journalists who covered them in their entirety, you being one of them. Why do you think this sort of journalism is important? And 
Why do you think it isn't funded by much of the media? Well, as a freelance reporter who's now freelance and who got laid off mid-trial, this is a, a subject that I ponder myself daily. I think it's a lot of things that are going on. I think there's, unfortunately, I, I, it's not just like a lack of interest at this point. People, I think, just have fatigue with January 6th. They have fatigue with Donald Trump. They've had fatigue with all of this for a very long time. And I understand that. It's been it's been very frustrating as a person in the middle of all of this to sort of watch everything go at the pace that it goes. But I think that that was part of it. It was the media fatigue. And I think it's also maybe a lack of understanding about what really happened that day and how close we really came to sort of losing, I would argue, quite a bit, if not everything, if not for a while anyway. That was what was always sort of jarring to me about covering these trials. And I did a lot of traveling after January 6th throughout the United States. And I just talked to people about January 6th. And it was like a year after the fact. And it was just such a diverse range of opinions from people who just did not care to people who felt like it wasn't a big deal to people who felt like it was extremely important. So I don't think that there's like this unified opinion that a a lot of Americans have about what happened and also what the ramifications were. But when you talk to people who were there that day, who were defending the Capitol, who were almost killed that day, they will be the first ones to tell you. It was a sheer miracle that it did not turn into a complete bloodbath. It was a a complete, just whatever it was, just worked out that it, it was not worse than it was. And people still died that day. And then in the days after But I I just, I don't know. I think because it's hard to get people, especially in America, where we do not have a very long history or understanding about coups or dictatorships, we're kind of insulated in that way. So I think it's kind of hard for people to really get it. And I hope that it doesn't come to something like what happened on January 6th again to convince people. And that's been, a, I think, the main driving motivator behind my reporting and my willingness to stay on this beat for so long is I do think that this matters. I think it's really important that people pay attention to the rise of fascism in their communities and to the rise of right-wing extremism and that they are invested in what happens because just throwing these guys in jail is not going to end these problems. Well, Brandy, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on. If people want to find you on Twitter, you are at Brandy underscore Buckman and the same at all of the other places as well. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, Andy, we'll be back next week. See you later. We will. Bye-bye. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now, the Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.